What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. And before we jump into today's conversation with Pat Cordyback, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. Number one, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review. The more positive ratings and reviews we get, the more it helps new people find the show and really helps to grow the community that we're developing here. And if you're one of those people that have recently found the podcast, welcome. I'm very excited to have you here. Make sure you subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes. And to everybody listening, make sure you screenshot this, post it to your Instagram story, tag at my social life podcast and at Cordy back to the future. And I'll feature you on the account and send you a message as well. Now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Pat Cordy back. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly, and today I'm joined by Pat Cordyback. And Pat is the lead singer of the band Stereos, which after an eight-year hiatus is back together, and they've recently released their newest single, Sunset Gold. And fun fact, Stereos was my first ever concert back in 2010. So I'm very excited to welcome Pat to the show. Pat, how are you doing today? I'm great, man. Thank you for having me. That's my pleasure. So where I want to start, I want to go all the way back to Edmonton when you were growing up. What were you like as a kid? Was music something that was always big in your life or was it something that kind of developed over time? Um, definitely developed over time. So like I would say my relationship with music growing up was probably similar to everyone's where I kind of just listened to what my dad listened to. Um, and it's, he actually has great taste in music. And so I was really like into, I don't know, man, Paul Simon and he he was a big Sting guy. Uh, I'm one of the few people who prefers Sting to the police. And like you tell anyone that they think you're blasphemous, but I, I didn't know any better. Just my dad was into Sting solo stuff. So I like that. But um, for me, man, I've always been a person who is um, overly passionate, I would say, where I uh, I get into something and I sink right in. And so I was actually a hockey freak, like everyone else who grows up in Edmonton at first. And then from there, it kind of, grew into I saw a band live and it changed my life forever that band was AFI and I was like that's what I want to do so that's when I really fully became uh like obsessed with music I would say interesting so it wasn't attending the Ninja Turtles concert that made you fall in love with music (laughs) no man that was more about um being obsessed with the cartoon and loving pizza than the music itself I don't remember what their songs were really like but I'm not I mean they probably weren't you know groundbreaking fair but I want to ask about your, the bands you were in before Stand By Me, which ultimately became Stereos, your first band was called Hope Unknown, if I'm not mistaken. That right? is correct. Yeah, good research. Thank you. But uh, Can you kind of talk to me about like how your first band came together? Yeah. Okay. So I was, like I said, I, I was obsessed with the band AFI, man. They changed everything. I was going to be a professional hockey player, then a professional skateboarder in my mind. I was, of course, not good at either thing not to that, that level at least but then i saw the band afi and the next day I, that, that that was it i was going to be a lead singer so from there i've always had this weird ability to i've always hummed my own melodies over other people's songs i would just do that and not even think anything i'm not i in my head i wasn't like oh i'm making the song better i was just like oh that's where my mind goes i have my own melody for this so when i started trying to write my own songs i didn't really have an outlet and then I met some guys in high school who were already a band and their singer had just left. They were kind of casual friends and they asked me to try out. So when I tried out for that band, I, you know, kind of put everything into, uh, th- that I'd sort of been working on into like writing songs without knowing how to play an instrument. And it just kind of clicked. Now the, the band was called Hope Unknown because that's an AFI lyric. And none of the guys in that band were into AFI and they kind of made fun of me for being so into AFI. 
and they didn't know that their band name was an AFI lyric. <laughs> so they found out and got so pissed, which is very funny. I still joke. I still kind of talk to some of the guys nowadays and they joke about that quite a bit. But um, yeah, it was just honestly, it was the fact that I wanted to be in a band and that was a band to be in. And was that the band where the infamous website IHatePat.CJB.net came from? Shit, dude. Yes, it is. My buddy Craig. And it was, uh, yeah, I, it was, he took a photo of me holding a microphone and superimposed something else similarly shaped. And that was just the entire page. Um, <laughs> it's so funny. I love it. And so like, ultimately, was it just like the riffs between you guys in terms of you being the only AFI fan and stuff that led to the, you guys kind of breaking up? No, man, they were a couple years older than me, so they graduated, and that's sort of the the death knell for any high school band. And I was also getting way too serious, whereas, like, they were they were buddies, okay? Like, uh, to go back a little bit, the four of them were, like, buddies forever. Like, grew up, and I kind of came into that. I didn't know them. We had a very different dynamic. And then one of them left, like, the bass player. And so it was already kind of changing. It wasn't what they started, and it wasn't, like I said, man, it wasn't, necessarily even my kind of music and so at that point you're 16 17 just life happened to be honest with you it wasn't any sort of riff or anything like that I, again they graduated one of them went to like moved away up north to work and stuff so it's just kind of again they they graduated they need to move on how many other stops in terms of bands did you have along the way before stand by me i know you were in a screamo band called mary rose was there anything else kind of before you got to stand by me <laughs> well i then from uh Hope Unknown started a band called Frantic, which was full out AFI. And that was like with my close friends. And we all sucked at our instruments, but we had a blast. And that really was like, I loved that band. It was so fun. And we could just be a complete AFI ripoff band. Um, and then from there, it was Mary Rose, which I met Rob, who's now in stairs with me. And that's how our relationship began. And uh, that basically turned into when Mary Rose broke up, Rob and I had Dan involved and that started stand by me, which, uh, the rest is kind of history with that. But I think the important part of that whole thing, man, is that stand by me was Rob, Dan and myself, three of us with no other band members. And we spent almost a year with no band members, just writing songs, just hanging out, just planning our future, what we were going to look like, everything like that, dialing it in. And that might sound a little ridiculous, but I think that's exactly why stereo stood out. Mm -hmm. And one thing of, in terms of dialing it in, Dan used to pay you $100 a day to take a day off work and just write music, right? Yes, that is correct. And that is uh, something that I forgot about until recently. Him and I talked about that this summer, I think. And uh, that really struck me, man, because that showed Dan was the first person to show real, real belief in what I could do as a songwriter and um, what I could do again, like none of us were crazy, like musicians or anything like that. We just were passionate. And he, he gave me that vote of confidence. And when I started writing in that period, that's when I wrote summer girl and a lot more of my very pop focused, uh, songwriting. And, uh, that was a very huge point. So uh, yeah, that's, that's huge for me that he did that. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to ask about that. Cause you guys definitely like, you had that overnight success, but there was a ton of work and a ton of grinding before you got to that point. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, this might be a different band. I might be getting confused, but did you guys ever go down to Disneyland and sell CDs out of the parking lot there? <laughs> so that is a different band, but that's exactly, okay, so the, this, is, uh, this is great. So Dan and Rob and Miles were all in this band called Calico Drive, which was like an Edmonton scene, like uh, 
legends. Now, their songs were okay, but their hustle was crazy. And so everyone in Edmonton would talk about Calico Drive because they were living in California. We th- we heard they were going to sign a drive through records and like they would go down and hustle. And so that's all Dan ever knew. And when Dan brought that into my life, that hustle, that mentality, and combined it with kind of my creative side, that's when we took off. But you're right, man. Like um, that. So that is their other band, but that is exactly kind of what laid the foundation for our overnight success was five years in the making. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned there that when you were getting paid by Dan to write those songs, that's when you wrote Summer Girl. And it does. It didn't sound like it sounds today. I believe it was ever down. Gavin Brown said the lyrics needed to change. Why? Like, what was it about the original lyrics that they needed to change? Because they were horrible. Um, like, so here's how I write songs. Right? I'm, I keep saying this, I, and it's it's true, and I think it's 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 cool. But I, I don't play any instruments, right? So I think that's one of the biggest benefits for us, though, is that my writing is completely vocal melody and chord progression which is why I think all our songs are fairly catchy is because all I'm worried about is how this one single piano note in the chord progression works with the melody that I'm humming. So lyrics have been until, I mean, they've never been my strong suit, man. I mean, Summer Girl, the lyrics, they turn the way they turned out, they're not like, you know, you know, they're, they're not inspiring anyone. Um, they're, but again, they're pop and they're just fun. But yeah, like I would just like, I would kind of mail in the lyrics as long as I could get the vocal melodies down. So it wasn't as though it was like, it just didn't make sense, man. And and so we kind of tell this story in Summer Girl, as um, douchey as the story actually is, um, we, uh, you know, at least we tell a story as opposed to me just rhyming random things. Mm-hmm. And then can you talk about what the gigs were like when, before you guys got on to disband? Like, were you pretty much just playing anywhere and everywhere you could? Yep, exactly. So we would throw local shows maybe twice a year and we would try and promote them as much as possible. But that was like, this is like 2007, I want to say. Right. And so there's kind of a shift that was happening. Whereas when we were in high school, shows were packed. Every show was packed. It was just a local show at a local hall and everyone went to the shows. That's what you did. You didn't have cell phones, man. Like I didn't get a phone until I was 19. And so the scene kind of was shifting though. So we'd put all our eggs in like these the the basket of playing like the local shows and they were they were okay man they would be decently attended but then we'd try and tour and you know you're playing a lot of very small small turnouts um but we we you know we'd get some opening slots we opened for like shiny toy guns and ill scarlet um and those were like big shows those were big bands at the time but most of the time it was like playing to like i would say 10 to 20 people um, but we loved it, man. That's the thing is like, we, like, that was, a, that was a huge rush for us. We would work jobs like retail or whatever the kind of job you could get quickly and then just quit them to go drive 14 hours to play one show in Winnipeg, just thinking that, you know, this is going to be a great opportunity because people might be there. And so we played all kinds of shows, man, but definitely it was very rare that they were well attended. That's wild. Was Summer Girl a hit even back then? Like when you guys would play it at shows? No. I'm trying to think about the timeline with Summer Girl, man. Because Summer Girl was the first time we experimented with playing two samples. And I know that there was one or two times where our drummer at the time, because we had a different drummer before we moved to Toronto. And that was, you know, kind of struggled. Like it was like an epic failure the first time we played it. I know that because we're trying to play the samples. We'd never done that before. It was all just live instruments and keyboards. Um, and we went off the rails and I remember like standing in front of the crowd being like, Oh, we're just figuring this out. Give us a minute. Like, which is obviously the worst thing ever. 
And uh, so, no, I would say that Summer Girl, man, Summer Girl was not even the song that we were going to play on Disband. It wasn't the number one, like, single. It was, um, you know, we've had an up and down relationship with Mark Spickluck, who ended up managing us. But that was his call. And it was a very, very, very good call because we had another song that we were supposed that we were, like, shopping as the single. What was that other song? Was it one that made it onto the album? That Jet Black Cadillac. Okay, yeah. So it ended up on the album, um, but yeah, it was not like he heard that song. He's like, "Whoa, this is different. Like, do this." And uh, again, I that is then what turned my my writing then focused for the rest of the album towards that more hip hop R and B, um, you know, sound, which ended up being our sound. I think, and uh, again, I think that was a, a fun, like a very very important uh decision and moment for us hmm. and then ultimately how did you guys get on to disband like what was the process did you just send in an application or like what did that look like man it's a crazy story so we were we got a message one day from this guy on our myspace page which is all we had at the time and this guy said hey uh my name is matt I work for this guy, Greg Norrie. You may have heard of him. He's a like great producer. He's worked with some 41. He was in Treble Charger. Um, we love your songs. Like We'd like to maybe work with you guys. Let's start a dialogue. Well, man, I've just described to you like what our past few years have been like. Trying to work with producers, trying to find a label. Like, you know, how do you do that? Like, we had no idea what we were doing. And this, we were like, okay, this is real. This dude is legit, like a producer. Like, and so we started sending songs to him. And by the way, they only found our MySpace page because they were checking out another band that we had opened for at one point. That sucked. I'm not going to say their name. But um, we're lucky. They found us. And, <clears throat> excuse me, they, uh, so then we started sign- sending songs back and forth. And Greg was very supportive. He would tell me which songs he liked, didn't like, what to work on, blah, blah, blah. And so he started coaching me through my songwriting. But I would say like three out of every four songs I would send him, he was really feeling and he was like, yes, we can work with this. And so he was really supportive and Greg Norrie is a legend, man. He's done it all. And he, I remember we were going to play f- football in the field, like the band. And like, we had a bunch of friends, but 20 of us going to play football. And man, at this point, by the way, anytime Greg Norrie would call, it would like, I would drop everything. Like I, you know, I want to take this call. So we finished playing football and I'd missed a call from Greg. And I'm like, Oh no, man. Like that's my opportunity, whatever. So I checked my voicemail and he describes over voicemail this show opportunity because by, at that point, by the way, sorry, I'm uh, I have to backtrack a little bit. Is the real struggle was finding a way to get out to Toronto to work with him, right? We had no money, and we didn't have a label or anything, so it's really tough to just actually get us out to Toronto to work with him. So, anyways, he calls, he leaves his voicemail. I've just been approached by the show where I'm going to be basically the host, and I coach bands through you know, a week in the life of the music industry, this is our opportunity to work together. It's going to be on much music, a reality show. And dude, I'm hearing this over voicemail. Like I'm in front of the guys and I literally stop walking. And I remember that moment. I am not making this up. I've said the story before, but this is a hundred percent fact. I got off the, I, I, I hung up the voicemail. I told the boys about it. And in that moment, I said, we are going to go on this show. We are going to be exactly what they're looking for. And we are going to turn into much music's band. We are going to be their band. And we are, this is, this is, this is our ticket. Sure enough, man, that's exactly how it played out. So then it was a little bit of a slow process. I think it took another few months to even work out those details. It actually almost was canceled because we were the only band that wasn't from uh, Ontario. And so they're like, well, we, we don't have the infrastructure and the money to put a band up or whatever. We're like, nope, we will sleep on floors. We've done this a million times on tour. 
we are going out there. We will sleep in our van if we have to. And so sure enough, Greg Norrie let us stay at his place during the whole process. And that is exactly how we got on that show. It's really cool to hear that story. And then especially once like everything we talked about before where you guys like hustled and grinded and you'd take all the gigs you could and you'd quit your jobs just to do one off gigs. And ultimately it was doing stuff like that, that led to them finding that band that you opened for that led to them finding you. So it's cool to just see how everything kind of pieced together when it might not have looked like it was a straight path from the beginning. Definitely, man. And that's the other thing too, right? Is that we definitely had a reputation over time. Once things were successful as like this TV, like, people dude man people were uh would ask us like did you guys know each other before disband like they thought we were put together you know like this boy band that had been like um manufactured but our roots and our um a lot of our approach was entirely punk rock and that's like you know what we grew up in but we we are the band that started in the basement and just worked our asses off um to get there and just to give everyone a quick little bit of context, I don't want to spend too, too much time on it, but could you just give everyone a quick like TLDR, like a 30 second, what Disband is, and then your guys' quick experience just on the show? Yeah, you bet. So Disband is a show where they take a band through a week in the music industry, you do a photo shoot, you like work in a studio maybe, um, and then at the end of the week, you play to a panel of industry judges who can be booking agents, uh, label reps. Um, some of them have no credentials. They were just like much music VMAs or whatever. Um, and anyways, and then they get at the end of the show, they say thumbs up or thumbs down. Like, yes, like you have what it takes or you don't. Um, and the one last thing I'll say is that a lot of people thought we won the show, but that's not how it worked out. We were just another one of the bands that got the thumbs up. There were many bands that got a thumbs up. What we did differently is that we ended up getting signed off the show and they documented that as well. And so we were kind of like the season finale, but actually we were the second band to shoot. So they just saved us for the, the last episode. Okay. That's it. So you guys literally, and then once that that show, that episode aired, you guys literally blew up overnight. Like the day before, you guys reached a band for Edmonton, and then the day after, you guys were huge. Can you kind of talk about that first week after the show aired? <laughs> yeah, dude, it was crazy. So, like you said, we, oh my goodness, man, it's so funny, like how you know perception versus reality, right? So we had moved out to Toronto in January, being told that we have this deal on the table. Move out here, boys. It's going down. Well, the actual deal negotiations went up and down sideways, like wasn't happening at one point. And we're in Toronto broke at this point. So if you think about that, the episode aired in May. So that's five months later, five and a half. It was May 27th. So there's those five months where nothing was happening. So the night the show aired, we played a show at Supermarket in Toronto, which is in like uh, Kensington. It's like the small venue, just like to work on our town, to no one. We played to the other band that was there. That's it. The only people playing and the show aired that night. Then Rob and I went to uh, a Strung Out concert, one of my favorite bands ever that night at uh, Sound Academy. And we're walking through and one, one person almost right away is like, oh, you guys are the guys from that band. And we're like, what? It had aired that night. And I was like, yeah, man, crazy. Like, yeah, I just saw you guys on TV, that's sick. I was like, really? Okay, cool. And that happened three or four times that night. And it was, again, this is night one. The next day, we all went to Walmart and almost shut down the checkout aisle that we were standing in. People were like, you guys are that band. And we're like, holy fuck, dude, this is happening. And then it would be McDonald's. It would be, uh, Rob and I would always uh, go out every Sunday morning before uh, NFL games would start. We'd go out in the front and just toss a football. And I'm not making it up, man. We see like in the distance, this like group of people. And it kind of gets closer. There's maybe like 20 young, like uh, grade eight girls. And they had found where we had lived. 
And they were like, this is all in the first week, man. And we're like throwing the football, like, hey, can we get photos? We're like, yeah, like for sure. But like also what what are you doing here? Um, and so it was, it, when you say overnight success, again, the <laughs> the work to get there was years and years and years, but it was what you kind of see in a movie, man. I'm not going to lie. Like it was the next day, it got to the point where, this is a little bit after the first week, but within the first year, man, we couldn't go to shopping malls. They would like security would ask us to leave because we were congesting like the entire walkways with like, you take a photo with one person and we always prided ourselves on never saying no to a photo or, you know, and I know that sounds easy, but it's not always easy in those situations, but we'd never say no, but then group would, you know, kind of accumulate. And that was all very, very early on, almost right away. That's insane. Do you, do you think that someone could have, a blow up like that in like that way that you guys had it still today in 2020? Or do you think that was something that was unique to that time period that we won't see anymore? Great question, man. And like, I think it would have to be different only because I don't think people consume television the same way. And television hits on such a massive level across the board in terms of age groups, demographics, households, right? Like, cause you could have someone go viral nowadays, which they do. And that's their ticket, but it's still sort of like, uh, sort of a dialed in group of people that really know about it. Right. And it can grow from there, but I don't think like the way a real, and they'd pumped up the episode for so long, man. It was like a week. It's like this band we met Gene Simmons, which was actually a very small part of the reality of our situation, but ended up being like a huge part of our story. And so I, I think you could maybe have a comparable breakout, but I don't think you could do it really in the same way. I think we were on a very interesting time in the music industry, man. We were like, I always say if we were 10 years earlier, we'd be millionaires. But if we were 10 years later, which would be nowadays, it would be way harder because of the way streaming works and just how you get paid with your music and stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I think it would, it would, it, it would not look the same. I don't think nowadays. And then, so how would you try and break through in 2020? Oh, man, here, I have this analogy that I've, made up over time about the music industry. So bear with me here. The in, the music industry is a lottery, okay? And everything you can put in your corner that you every everything that you can do is a lottery ticket that you just bought. And every lottery ticket you buy gives you a better chance, right? So, for my analogy, if you are good looking, that's a lottery ticket. If you have a lot of talent musically, that's a lottery ticket. If you know the right people, that's a lottery ticket. So what I'm getting towards here is as many lottery tickets as you can get, you have the best chance to win. However, you probably won't. And it can be one stupid ticket that does win. Do you know what I mean? You could have no talent, not look good, but know the right people. Or you could just be good looking and that could be it. So this is a long way of saying, man, no one knows what they're talking about. No one does, man. They're like it, it, this, The music industry changes every day. You could have a sick TikTok video and that could be your ticket. I don't know. I'm the one of the worst people to ask in terms of like, advice my advice would be only do it expecting not to make it but because you love it um but in terms of how to actually break out man i'm learning like with this the, our new single like the way the platforms and everything like that it's so different i i don't really know how to give um advice other than get yourself as many lottery tickets as possible and expect to still lose 
That's interesting. And I want to kind of double back quickly to when you were talking about how when you guys moved from Edmonton to Toronto, you all lived together in the same house. And I heard or read somewhere that while you guys were there, you decided to just not go out and practice every single night. And that lasted for about a year. How important do you think making that decision was to the success of the band? <laughs> well, okay. I'm going to make a very important distinction. <laughs> we did that in Edmonton. Got you. Okay. And so that was like the I would say a year and a half, two years before we moved to Toronto. And it was unequivocally one of the most important decisions. Absolutely, dude. That is when all of our friends were going out all the time. We're at that age, right? Like 22 20 to 24-ish. And we hold up. And that's why we lost a lot of band members in that time, man. People were like, I don't want – I want a life. And we're like, cool, see ya. And we we did not want a life. It was just music, man. It was every single day. Um and, but, but when we moved to Toronto, it was the opposite. That's when we just, we completely floored it. Um, and that's before we even like the episode came out, we discovered the Toronto, uh, like nightlife scene. And we were, <laughs> we were, yeah, very, very much sold on that. So we, yeah, we didn't stay in, but you know what? All jokes aside, man, that's the way to do it. We put in the work to get us there and we, we certainly had fun once we got there. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about the success of Summer Girl, but before we get there, you mentioned how originally you didn't want to release Summer Girl. It was supposed to be Jet Black Cadillac. So how hard was it for you to go from just being in Edmonton, you making all of the creative decisions, you're in control versus now you're in the industry and you have other people that are making decisions and they have control and you have to listen to other people's inputs. How hard was it for you to go from to like, from one end all the way to the other so fast? You know what? Very, very good question. But actually, um, I, I just didn't explain it properly. So I, the, the, the decision to go in the summer girl direction was actually the biggest um, vote of confidence for my idea. Jet Black Cadillac was more of a pop punk. Um, it was still pop, but it was like more pop punk, like live band, faster, more up-tempo song. Uh, and it certainly fit our image. Now I was saying, what about our image? But with this hip hop R and B sound, it's fucked, dude. No one like is doing that really. And like you can point to some that are similar, maybe, but it, it wasn't as polished and top forty as what we were doing. And so I actually wanted it to be Summer Girl. What it was was that we had sort of, with Greg Nori, thought that it would be Jet Black Cadillac. It was like more of a safer bet. Um, but when Mark came into the fold and his input was um, sort of solicited he suggested that hip hop R&B thing. And so I was over the moon and a lot of people ask about that. And I will definitely, there's so many good parts about being on a major label. And there are definitely parts that, um, that sucked in retrospect that I think were um, not the greatest. But one thing I will say, man, is I was almost never, ever um, put in a position like they asked like, yeah, what was it like when, you know, you had to be, you know, they, they had to make all the shots. They, they let us make almost all the creative calls. The second single, like, and obviously this is further down the line, the, the lead off single on our second album was not my choice. And I didn't even like that song. But uh, other than that, man, everything other than that was, uh, we, we really did, were able to make the creative calls. So we are, I don't know if other people's experience was different, but that's something we actually didn't really go through. And in terms of creative control, and what was it like on set shooting a music video? Like, were, did you guys still have creative control in that respect, or were the directors more so kind of organizing that? Great question, actually. So, no. Um, <laughs> I actually sort of jokingly refer to this. Like, we're very, I would say, like, close with the uh, 
with Davin Black, who did a lot of our videos, and I love the guy to death. And and honestly, this is the way it should be. But we joke about how, like, the process of a music video is this: you meet with the director, you tell them what they want, they tell you what you want to hear, and then they shoot the video they want. And that's exactly how it works out. And it's probably how it should work out. So yes, they called the shots. They would change it. They'd be like, yeah, cool, man. I'll work with that. And then they do their own thing. And it's better because of it because they know what they're doing. But um, the experience though was incredible, man. Like we had, I'm trying to think there's one video shoot I didn't enjoy, but it was just because <laughs> it was like a slow song and like we shot it in a house. And so, I mean, I'm going to be honest, like one of the biggest benefits back then is that a lot of our videos had a ton of girls in it and like partying and stuff. And so I didn't get to do it with that one video and that kind of bummed me out, but otherwise it was great. <laughs> That's hilarious. I've heard you describe too, in terms of music videos that the visual also music videos and just the visuals and look of the band are almost as important as the music. Why is that? Well, because I think it's an important part of what we do. And so like, um, and I think that's maybe something I've said recently too, because I think I'm, I'm really m more into the visual now more than ever. And just because like, and I, I don't think it's necessarily for every band, but for us and for me, I've said this before is like when I shoot a video or sorry, when I write a song, I see kind of a picture as well, like music and movies and stuff go hand in hand to me. And so I can be watching a movie that just gives me a vibe, like the way it looks, you know what I mean? And then you can write a song about that same vibe. And so I think for us, like one of the biggest things is that we look different than we sound. I think um, if you were just to hear, excuse me, summer girl, or even now our new song, sunset gold, I think that you would be surprised if you didn't know who we were to see like this rock and roll looking band playing these kinds of songs. And so I think for us, it was very important in kind of, um, it's just, again, it's like the lottery ticket, man. It's just another thing that people latched onto. I'm not going to like, pretend here that every girl that was a massive stereos fan loved every song we had i think a lot of it was because we looked like they wanted the fans to look like we would have girls come up to us man this was uh, it is what it is and like i would not change our experience for the world we were so lucky but we would have people come out to show or sorry come out to our mall signings right which we would do the day of a show and we'd be like hey what's going on you come to the show tonight and they're like what show i'm not joking dude that would happen often they would see that we were coming to HMV or the or like a boathouse or like a skate shop, and they'd be like, "Oh my God, Stereos is here!" And that's all they wanted. They just wanted to meet us and take a photo with us. They didn't even care that we were a band. And I guess again, that part must be part of the success is just the look of the band, coupled with a sound that you wouldn't expect you guys to have. And do you think that had you gone with a different name other than Stereos, that would have affected it? Because I know you, I, I were turn it up, or no, you were stand by me then turn it up and then stereos in between i know you guys were like debating whether you call yourself like way too cool or the city kids like how'd you guys settle on stereos man that's yeah we had some bad band names and i think yes to answer your question stereos is a very important part of it because let's say we were city kids okay stupid name but it still probably could have done okay at the time well 10 years later now we're doing reunion shows like I don't think that would be cool. Like I've got gray in my beard now, man. Like I don't think, I think stereos being a very um, nondescript, uh, very malleable, like it, it can be twisted in different directions. It can mean whatever. And it's, it's just simple is a huge, huge sell. I can't believe like that it was, we were even considering those other names. And I, I don't remember the exact story. We had literally gone to universal, this huge building at the time. I don't know if they're still there. 
and brainstormed on this huge whiteboard, like different names, man. Like it looked like a beautiful mind or whatever. And it was like, uh, and, and just like going over them and we had nothing good. Neon black was one of them. That's eh, not the worst actually. Now that I say, no, nah, it's terrible. Anyways. Um, but I remember, I think it was honestly just after that meeting where we got nothing done. Me like coming, I, I think I asked Mark, I didn't even ask the band. I was like, what do you think about stereos? It's just simple, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yeah, you know what? I think that might be something cool. Let's whip up a logo. They whipped up a logo and then we were all kind of sold on it pretty quick. It didn't mean anything, obviously. It was just kind of a word. And I wanted to ask too about the, you guys did a song with Far East Movement. What, how, what's the story behind that? Man, that was sick. Like, um, I'm trying to, yeah. So uh, Gavin Brown, our producer, had a really good relationship with Martin Kirzenbaum who ran like Cherry Tree and was the head of Interscope at the time in the States. And so we were still like a no-name band, right? Like our album was obviously recorded before we came out, right? Because you have to record and then release it. So we were sort of a no-name and we were just trying to get features on it. And he asked the Martin Kirzenbaum out of LA, do you have anyone? He said, yeah, I have this band, like see what they can do. We heard it and we're like, this is incredible. Now keep in mind though, at the time, like a G6 had not come out yet. So we were like, I, and like nothing against Farry's Moon, we're like, man, this verse is like, this bridge is sick, but like, we get anyone bigger or is this it? And they're like, no, like that's probably it. Like, and it's good. You guys like it, right? I'm like, yeah, man, I love it. Like, this is very, very, very good. And then they obviously blew up and it was crazy. But um, here's a funny story behind that song is that the chord progression was reworked from an original demo I wrote with the same, same, everything, same structure. But then a producer we had had a close friend take it to a different producer and he reworked the instrumentals around it, like remix the song essentially. And we're like, this is way better. Let's use this. So we get Faris moving on the track. The song's done. It literally gets cut everything. We were planning on making it a single. And then we hear that this producer T minus, who's a massive producer. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he did like Drake. Everything is like, what the fuck? That's my song. Like, I'm not credited. I'm not on the, like, we're like, what? We thought our buddy remixed it. So the middleman was just okay being taken and put on as like the writer. And we're like, oh, and we didn't get it ever resolved. It was never released as a single. We've never, I don't think we've ever been paid for any of the royalties on the song because the producer, and I do not blame him to this day, man, was like, fuck it, man. I don't need the money. Like I, I got fucked. He felt like he got screwed over, but it's a great song. I love that song. We still play it live, but. Yeah, it was uh, like a massive no-no in terms of someone bringing us the song as their own and we didn't give credit where it was due and no one gets paid. That's that's wild. But I want to jump to the, to the 2010 Juno. So you guys were nominated for New Group of the Year and Pop Album, uh, album of the Year, if I'm not mistaken. Rob. But yeah, I was going to say, because you found out that you guys weren't going to win because the industry, to the point you made earlier, felt like you came up through TV and that's why you were getting all this attention. So. Did hearing that kind of, I think it was like around like at the Junos, you learned that. Did hearing that kind of give you a chip on your shoulder? No. So here's like, so when I say Rob, I say it entirely facetiously because the pop album of the year is won by Justin Bieber. Fucking no brainer. And the best new group, this is the funniest thing for me, man, is uh, the best new group was Arkells. Like the best band. Of course they won. They're so much better than us. And at the time I remember being like, Really? But no, dude, like we were not robbed. The right people won the award. But what you're talking about is we actually were part of the ceremony to announce the nominees. We were at a hotel in Toronto 
And we found out at that same thing, like we were part of this huge Juno thing. We announced other nominees and then they announced us for the two categories. And we're like feeling pretty stoked. And our manager told us then, and this is months in advance. He's like, you guys aren't going to be winning anything. We're like, what do you mean? He's like, man, I just, and I don't know if it was like, <coughs> like he really knew or if he just knew because he knows how the industry works. You know what I mean? I don't want to make it more than it is where it was like, by the way, we know the winners. I don't think it was that. I just think it was like, we know how this is going to play out because we know how the industry feels about you guys. You broke through television. You didn't break, break through, you know, the traditional means. I don't think they like, they have to nominate you guys because we were probably one of the biggest pop bands in Canada at the time, but I don't think they love you guys. And it was sort of that. And so in terms of a chip on my shoulder, man, like I always have a chip on my shoulder. Just ask anyone. But um. I don't know. I, I don't think it like I said some stuff in interviews about the Junos that I wish I didn't say because I do think looking back that it's such a crazy accomplishment, man, from where we started in the basement, right? You're now nominated for a Juno. That's incredible. That's a huge like again, it's a pat on the back that you deserve and and is what you dream about. But I would say things like, Yeah, you know what, I don't care if we win. Um, I don't do it for that reason, I do it for the fans, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't really need to say that because I mean, of course it's true that I didn't do it for awards but i think yes once i found out like you guys are not winning this award i didn't care what i said about it mm -hmm. and that's perfect that you brought up interviews because i wanted to ask you about a couple different instances and in interviews the first one being i think it was for your second album where the host got the name of the album wrong and then you repeated a different album name every single time for the rest of the interview is that true yes it's true so they would say i, th I forget what she called it like undeniable the album is called uncontrollable and then, yeah, so I would say, yeah, unconventional is about blah, 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 blah. And then, um, yeah, so, yeah, I did that. And they were not happy about it. <laughs> the other one was I found an old interview. Like when I was prepping for this, I found myself in like the depths of the internet. At I'm nervous, just trying man, to find stuff. You're already like, I can tell you, you know your shit. And like, I was, anyways, let's go. Okay, so it's at Ottawa Blues Fest. First, you guys were in a trailer. And I think over half the band had sunglasses on in the trailer. <laughs> And you asked how you got into the music industry and you said you were a backup dancer first and then you got your break. Is that, I'm assuming that was not true. Right. Yeah. Not true at all. And like I, so there reasonable minds may differ on this. And actually you might have some input of your own because obviously like interviewing is a craft and I think it's important and it helps both parties. Right. That's the big thing is that like, it, it's a, it's a mutual relationship. Like they're a good way of you expressing kind of how you feel about things. But um, at the same time, I kind of think interviews like, I don't know, maybe again, maybe you're, you're different than this, but I would watch bands that I loved in interviews. And if I could tell they were kind of fucking around, I always found it very funny. And so I think after, you know, answering a lot of the same questions, I would be very sarcastic and things like that. Now I would never want that to be at the expense of the person interviewing which i think is why i got in trouble for the uncontrollable band name thing but i don't know man like what do you think like i think like if you're going to interview a band and you don't know the name of the album or you get it wrong like that's fine it'd be one thing if what, what what would be better is if i make if i'm like uh don't you know the name of the album or if i joke around i don't know what do you think no i think i'm on like your side with that one because especially from my side as an interviewer I pride myself on being very thorough with my research so i want to know my stuff going into an interview and i would just if I was winging it and didn't know my stuff, I would hate for that to come across in the interview. So especially in your case where you were answering the same questions every time to get someone not even get 
like the basics of like your album name right i understand why you guys would kind of mess around in those situations i was just curious because those are kind of funny stories i wanted to ask you about yeah man and like i um like again i i hope that it was not in a mean-spirited way it was like an opportunity for me to just joke around then because i was like it's almost self-deprecating at that point i'm like man oh my god like <laughs> they don't even know the name of our album who gives a shit anyways like whatever so it was yeah i mean i was definitely never ever with the intention of putting people down but i mean like I've definitely said stuff in interviews before. Again, I was like a kid in a lot of ways in my early 20s that I kind of cringe at now. Whereas, you know, you're trying to be funny and it just maybe doesn't come across the right way. But, uh, you know, I'd like to think that I'm in a much better, better place now. Fair. And I wanted to ask you too, where most of those interviews would have happened is during your tour. That was probably when you're doing all the, the breakfast show tour as well, but you're also doing a cross country tour. Can you talk to me about that time where you guys did your first cross Canada tour as a headlining band? Yeah, man, it was the time of my life. So I don't know what happened like with my body. I guess I just got older, but dude, we would, here was the, like, the day you would get up probably at like 11 30 12 you'd sound check you'd have the day or like you know to do whatever um we'd probably do some signings throughout the day we'd play the show and then every single city we would go out and we would go bananas we would you know like i've told the story before but rob and i were reading the dirt the motley crew book at that time which is the worst standard to set for like acceptable behavior um, I said that on a, like, I talked about it on a recent podcast, but like, so we would drink and we'd be like, man, we're not even that bad. Like Motley Crue was doing zombie dust. Like we're just going out drinking all night. And then we would somehow have the ability to do breakfast television, which as you maybe know, is like a 6am, like acoustic performance. And I was fine. I, I could drink all night. I could sing in the morning. I could, you know, sleep it off and do that. And so it was like basically summer vacation for morons for like, an entire year it was awesome and I've, i'm not mistaken you guys had a pretty small crew in terms of that show right like yes you were signed to a label but it wasn't a big road crew if i'm not mistaken uh nope not not big at all and and then i would say like all we had specifically was our tour manager bobby who was the best tour manager of all time and then our front of house um like sound and merch guy john wiseman who was a great dude as well he actually moved out with us from edmonton he was just kind of like the you know sixth member of the band um, and then from there, we did have lighting and sound, but they were shared with the other band we were touring with, the Midway State. So in terms of our own specific crew, two guys, and then we had the rest of them that was like a shared uh, crew with Midway State. Very, very uh, bare bones, but it was all we needed, man. Mm -hmm. And so I know you said that you were you were younger at the time and your body could handle it, but did you ever kind of hit a point where you were like exhausted or just like you didn't feel like going to a show one night? Unfortunately, yeah. And so I do look back on that with a little bit of like, um, we, we laugh about it now. There's a, <laughs> there's a story where, okay, again, man, like we're doing everything we can just to play one show in Winnipeg. And then you fast forward, not that long, maybe like two and a half, three years. And there was a point where we had a week off from t between tours where we were offered a show for like $15,000, let's say. And Dan's like, yeah, we have a show off. And Aaron and I were like, nope, not doing it. I will pay you to not play this show. I remember saying, I'll pay everyone's way. Cause I, I just want that week off, which is so dumb and like the douchiest thing, but yeah, we, uh, I think the, you know, it definitely got to a point where it felt like a job and there's different shows, man. When you're playing to like your fans, that's great. But like, of course there's different kinds of shows you play. You can play corporate shows where it's like, you're literally get hired out for a ton of money by a big like tech company to play their Christmas party, but they don't give a fuck. And it's like, 
you know, that kind of sucks. Or, you know, you're playing, I didn't like playing theaters because it's like, there's a ton of seats, but then the kids all crowd the front, uh, which is great. We want, like, we grew up like with, like, we're just all general admission kind of situations. So I don't know, man, like looking back on it now, we should have appreciated every second, but there were definitely times where you get a little bit burnt out. And then even physically, I lost my voice from drinking too much on one tour. So that's good job, Pat. <laughs> and I was just curious because like we see instances like Justin Bieber canceled his world tour and people made such a big deal about it. But I was curious to hear your perspective of someone that's actually been in that situation of touring and playing a new show every night, how much of a toll that actually takes. But I wanted to ask you about one specific show, the Red River X in Winnipeg in June of 2010. So that was my first concert. And I think so Carly Rae Jepsen opened for you guys. I was curious how that oh, all happened where she was opening for you. Dude, I I absolutely remember that show vividly. And here's why. We played that. Okay, so we had just done, which was actually one of my favorite tours we ever did. We did a month and a half in the States with Jeffree Star. Um, and this, like the YouTuber Jeffree Star? Yeah, yeah. He had like a he had a band. I think he has a few albums. And um, a band called Broken Side. Uh, anyways, we, uh, we were on that tour for a month and a half in the States. And this was kind of like our, our popularity in Canada was kind of at its height. Like it was very big, um, which was great. But then we go down to the States. And what I loved about the tour in the States was we only had to play four or five songs. We were the opening act. And then we could, <laughs> as, as sad as it sounds, we could go out every night and like no one knew who we were. It was awesome. Like we were just like, again, on vacation in like all over America. It was wicked. I loved it. But by the end of it, like, again, we've been playing for a month and a half where no one knows who we are right? Like they, we'd make fans, some kids, like maybe like five to 10 at every show would know us, but it wasn't like, you know, we, we didn't have the, uh, the huge like fan support down there at all. It was, but I, I loved it. But at the same time, like you, you kind of miss that. And so we flew in after the last tour dates in the States to Winnipeg and that Red River X-Men was our homecoming. Cause I remember the crowd was nuts. We headlined the show People loved us. They knew all the words again. And that show meant so much, man, to come back home and have that support. It was crazy. Um, now, the obvious, like, funny part of it is mega superstar Carly Rae Jepsen was still kind of doing her folk stuff at that point. Because she wasn't a pop artist, really. Like, she was pop, but it was like folk pop, right? Like, it was it was not, she had not done her, like, Call Me Maybe stuff at all yet. And so she opened for us a lot back then. Mm-hmm. That was just curious. It was like her crack in the bucket days. Yeah, exactly. Crabs right. in the bucket, whatever it's called. Well, yeah. crabs in the it was a hole in the bucket. Yeah, something. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And even I remember too. I remember because I so I sent an audio DM when I originally set up this podcast. I sent an audio DM to the Stereo's Instagram account, and as I was recording that, I remembered like as I was talking that you also covered a Jason Derulo song at that show. Oh, probably. If I'm not mistaken. No, you're probably. We definitely did. I forget what song it was, man. It was, uh, in my head, in my head. Okay. I think that was like his first big single, but, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. I remember that show so, so, so well. And man, um, here's the funny part about that night is Dan and I went out and back then. So Dan is like, you know, Dan, Rob and I started this band. We're the closest three and Dan and I are very close now again, but in the band days, Dan and I actually were not that close. Like I would go out a lot and he actually kind of didn't go out that much, but that night after the Red River X, we went out. It was just him and I. And we went to some club that like the promoter took us to, whatever. And I remember we walked in and it sounds like I'm bragging and I'm not, but it was just like, these are the memories I think about. Like, I, I don't care. 
is we walk in and uh, like this group of girls came up to us and started talking to us and they were standing with a bunch of like massive dudes. And I was like, they do not look happy. And they're like, oh yeah, they're the blue bombers. They don't know who you are and they hate that we're talking to you. I was like, this is the sickest thing ever. <laughs> there were some football players and they're like, who are these little <laughs> guys? Like I could not have looked very impressive to them, especially if they didn't know the band. Um, yeah, stole your girls, sorry. That's that's awesome. And you mentioned there the U.S. tour and how not a lot of people knew you when you were down there. Were you guys were you guys funded at all by Much Fact? Like I think there that was like the thing that tried to keep a lot of Canadian talent within the borders here and like on Canadian airways. Were you guys funded by them at all? Yeah, I don't know the specific ones, but we definitely were funded by grants. I know that like Star Maker was one, but a lot of there was something to, like that's the only way we would have survived and not like lost our shirts because we had funding from Canadian stuff as well yeah yeah fair and then what was it like touring with jeffree star then like what was he like he was on the road he was honestly great he was very very like he had a great sense of humor very sarcastic which fits with myself and rob we got along great he had a guitar player named phil at the time i remember phil was awesome great dude loved him um and then we toured the, the band broken side i have nothing nice to say about them but nothing mean to say about them either we didn't see them because from my understanding they were just like high on painkillers in their bus entire day and then they would play their show and then go do more painkillers so fair enough i've like i i i have nothing to say about them either way i didn't really meet them to be honest for the two months because they were doing their own thing but there's one band and man i'm not a big guy for burning bridges i think that like if you know everyone's trying you know usually there's some goodness in most people but we played a band with a band called blood on the dance floor and fuck that band forever man the guys in that band were just losers there's tons of allegations if you want to look them up about the singer and i'm not surprised at all man he just was the greasiest like muppet i've ever met and so they were not cool but other than that man we had an amazing time with jeffree star he i I thought he was he was great he was supportive and we again we got to see the united states so that was that was a great great experience in my life Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you, so you've said a bunch of crazy experiences over the time of touring and blowing up, but like, if you were to narrow it down, what is the craziest situation you guys found yourselves in during that time? Oh my God. Like, Oh, I'm okay. So I, I can give you kind of, I'm going to, I have a tendency to talk a lot. So I'm going to try and like give you different categories of crazy time. So one crazy time would be <coughs> getting off stage at, um, Virgin Fest in Montreal. We just played our set. And waiting to go on the same stage is like the Black Eyed Peas. You know, that's a fucking crazy experience. That's when you're like, you know, you're not just like playing a big show in your hometown anymore. And they like, Fergie smiled at me. To this day, I'll say she smiled at me. People debate that, but she did. Anyways, so we got on stage and like, you know, Black Eyed Peas are ready to go on. And um, that's massive. Another crazy experience is when we, uh, when we, it was within, I think, a couple months of Summer Girl coming out, we got an opening slot for Katy Perry. Now, in no way am I trying to say that we were on par with Katy Perry. She's massive and way bigger. But we were new enough that at that point, we ended up walking by a chain link fence, signing an autograph, and it ended up being that we did we missed her entire set because so many kids were coming over to us asking for autographs. The reason why that's significant is because these kids were also missing Katy Perry's set to come ask for autographs of us. That's a crazy moment. That's wild. I'll give you another crazy moment. We were driving through the States and we get pulled over because in Texas, they have these like checkpoints for like drugs or human trafficking, right? And we're like, what the fuck? 
So they pull us over, and Aaron from the back of the van is like, guys, I have weed. We're like, oh, fuck. So they come, like, everyone out, everyone out, everyone out. So we leave the van, and they start putting dogs in the van. They're in our faces yelling, do you guys have anything in there? What are we going to find? Tell us now, tell us now. And to the point we're like, oh, my God. And this is on our American tour. And they're like, uh, and I'm kind of, like, starting to, like, look sideways at Aaron, like, dude, just come clean, come clean. Anyways, the dogs come out, and they're like, yeah, they're clean, whatever, let them go. And we're like, what? So we get back in the van and I'm thinking like Aaron is like, Oh my God, guys, I feel sick. I'm like, did he eat it all? Like what happened? It's like, what the fuck? What's going on? What's going on? Like, how did we get out of that? And Aaron's like, I put it in my sock. I knew they were going to search the van. I, and I assumed they weren't going to search us. And he was right. And it was like, Oh my God, we would have got, dude, our tour would have been over. He would have been deported. Like it would have been insane. Like that was like another moment where it's just like, what is going on in our lives? Um, we played a showcase for Akon where it was him in a chair in front of us watching us play and like his business partner. That was a crazy experience. There's tons, man. <laughs> Did you guys ever get in any band fights? Like <laughs> n- not, not with each other, but with other people? Mm. Um, no, not really. Like, no, like the music industry is so fucking like lame, dude. Like it's more like everyone's nice to each other's faces and then talks massive shit behind their backs. It's just a, it like little losers. Uh, and of course, we were part of that. I'm including us in that. But um, I, like nothing. I'm trying to think, man. If there's anything overt, I know that Josh Ramsey fucking hates us, hates us, and always made it very Why? obvious. And um, I think Dan and him went back and forth on Twitter once, and he was just an absolute like dick bag and like it would literally be like the rest of the man hey guys what's up like we play festivals with him all the time and he would just like look down and like not look at us and little dracula i don't know fuck him weird yeah i know i'm like and here's the thing about josh ramsey he's so fucking talented it's annoying i wish someone untalented hated us you know what i mean because then i could be like ah he sucks but it sucks he's very good it's very annoying so how easy was it during that time to believe your own hype? And was ultimately that part of the reason why you guys ended up breaking up for the first time? No. Like, so first part of the question, very easy. I've always believed my own hype. And I think that like all jokes aside, like I joke about like that side of it, but I think that you need the confidence. You absolutely need the confidence because I've always been like, my entire life was spent in sports, right? And I knew that confidence goes a long way in terms of your success and your ability to believe in yourself and get better. And so I've always kind of carried that mentality, like the chip on the shoulder that you mentioned earlier and like believing in myself into music. So I've, yeah, I believed my own hype. I thought we were amazing. I thought we were doing something different. I thought we were a great pop band and everything like that. Now, did ego certainly cause rifts in the band? Absolutely. There were parts where I thought I was sort of above um, following the same set of rules as the rest of the band members. And I look back on that with regret because it's not true. And it's also like definitely caused division. Um, but to bring a full circle, man, the reason we broke up is such a sharp contrast with how we started and everything we talked about with our work ethic. And what I think, it's not the singular cause, but the bigger overarching cause of us breaking up was um, the struggle and lack of success of our second album. We had gotten so used to, you know, soaring and everything we're doing being a win that I think our, you know, our ego and our morale took a huge hit when the second album, the second tour wasn't doing as well. And that led into second guessing and thinking, we need to do this differently. We need to, you know, like, 
we need to branch off. And it's just so weird because again, our personalities were like work our asses off. We should have taken a year off, man, and like traveled. We had money and come back at it. But we we kind of quit very quickly, which is so I, I would say almost incompatible with the people who started that band and our personalities and work ethic then. Mm-hmm. And was it before or after you guys made the final decision to break up the band that you, Rob, and Dan did a road trip to Nashville and ultimately started a second band? Yeah, so we were still in Stereos at that point. Um, I don't think it was going great, but we kind of on that trip were like, you know what, let's let's do something different. Um, and fuck, man, again, I, like I still like a lot of people are like, man, <coughs> no regrets. You know what I mean? Everything. I do have regrets and I think that's healthy to have regrets. And I do regret the fact that we didn't say, okay, we could have just messed around with a different band and different sound, but also kept stereos intact, which is the way most people would do it. You know what I mean? But uh, instead, yeah, we started this new band and then decided to, you know, move back West, the three of us and uh, break up the band, which I, I still do not think was the right call. No. And then, so this, the new band was called I 65, right? Yes. And that that wasn't that didn't last too long, right? Like I know I think you guys like wrote and made a ten song album that never made it public, right? It's too bad, man. To this day, kind of annoying because um, I've like obviously I've written many things since, but my dad to this day is like that's the best stuff you've ever written. I'm like, okay, thanks, dad, but also not thanks because I've done tons of stuff since. Um, <clears throat> but all jokes aside, man, it was a great album. It was on uh, Six Hundred Four Records, and to this day, man, I don't know what like what it was in it for them to. It was about a year. We shot, we shot three videos, had three singles, and that is actually one of the first times we got into a creative difference. We shot a video and had a second single chosen, and then they ch- at the last minute were like, "No, we want this different song to be the single." And so they flew us to LA to shoot a video for that, and the that song did nothing. And then they like, man, they put a ton of money into like recording us and putting us up, and they just never released the album. I don't know what's in it for them to not release it, but it just never happened, dude. Weird. And then, so what, what did you do between ending I-65 and the 10 year reunion show? Like, what did you get up to during that time? Oh my God, man. It's like everything and everything. Obviously I lived off royalties for a little while and then that became obviously not a path of, you know, it wasn't going to last forever. So I actually went back to school and I was uh, taking some like business management courses. Uh, Rob is a personal trainer. Dan is um, he basically has a painting company and then he'll work his ass off and then go on bike trips and then work his ass off and go on bike trips, which is sick. It's like, it's awesome. Um, so it's just been all over the map, man. I think Aaron and miles are, uh, you know, we're still kind of in the music industry. Aaron's, uh, like an audio director. So he does a lot of like, um, just different things with, in terms of like, there's some music involved. There's some like books on tape stuff, but he's doing well, doing really well with that. Um, and yeah, so just living completely different lives, man. And like that 10 year reunion was just us saying, man, if 10 people show up, at least we can go out on our own terms and like celebrate this because there was resentment when we broke up and there was like second guessing. And so why don't we celebrate stereos for what it should be celebrated as, as a positive and like an amazing opportunity in our lives. And just, you know, you know, you're only going to get a 10 year reunion once. so. Uh, when we, uh, when we, you know, did that show, we had no expectations of what it would turn into. And it's sort of completely started this new trajectory for us. Mm-hmm. Cause I was going to, I had a quote written down here about that show where you're talking about how the fact that you wouldn't have expected 500 people and you sold out a 500 person venue. And I was surprised to hear you say that. Cause I, 
like once I heard you guys had sold that out, I was like, oh, that makes sense. So I was surprised to hear you think that you wouldn't get 500 people. Why, like, why is that? Well, just because like, you never know it's an unknown quantity. So like, actually this is like, we always have these, these funny wrinkles in our stories, man. And I love it. It's so, it's so funny. We never like, nothing really gets handed to us. So we met this guy, Andrew in Toronto. And he essentially was like, I'm going to book you guys the, this reunion show. And we're like, cool, man. Sounds good. Like if, you know, takes it, we were going to try and book it ourselves. We had no idea how to do this. And <clears throat> he started going around and no promoter would take the show. No one. They were, you know, we're an unknown commodity. Like the band hasn't been around. I'm not getting you guys any guarantee. He went to, you know, CMW and asked them to put us on. And they said no originally. And then they only agreed once. Uh, the they only agreed to like put us on once he said listen like we will finance the whole thing just put us on like as part of the flyer and they're like okay begrudgingly and anyways it was just andrew who worked his ass off promoting over and over and over to sell that show out and so i didn't know what to expect because when you hear no enough you think those people are probably right you know what i mean like if the promoters are saying we're not going to book you then maybe they know something we don't like no one's going to come to this show um but Andrew bet on us and he won and that's and that was just like the massive thing. It's funny, the day of the show, a bunch of people from Canadian Music Week uh reached out to Andrew for guest list spots, which I love. I was gonna ask, how did it feel to be like how did the night of that show feel for you? Like, did you have any pre-show nerves or anything? And how did it feel to be back with stereos performing again? Well, I was fucked, man. It was so we flew out a few days early to rehearse because of course we hadn't rehearsed in eight years um and so we were doing that and kind of getting the songs together again and man it was surprised me how quickly it came together like very quickly we were like in a good pocket very quickly and so i was like i already knew that we were going to sound good and then the other side of the whole thing is before we even flew out to rehearse we knew it had sold out so that took a lot of pressure off right because the pressure comes from not knowing what how it's going to go over and that but once it's sold out you know they're there to see you and you know that they're like excited about this reunion. So that takes all the pressure. And then it's just all positive energy. Of course, I had massive, like, I couldn't sleep the night before. I was like, the whole day, you're just like nervous. And like, there was that, but it was all excited, exciting and positive. And um, I uh, I have to take care of my voice quite a bit nowadays too. So I, because of one thing, the way I didn't take care of it in the past. And so the day of the show, I like kind of hold up in the, in the apartment uh, we were renting. And just didn't go out. And then I just came to the venue an hour before the show. And man, our backstage was packed with friends and like old people, like old contacts, man. And I almost like cried, dude. Like seeing that many people who came out to be like, I want to be a part of this. I want to support. I want to relive this. Uh, it, it was so humbling, man. And it was like before we went on stage, we'd already won. We'd already won. And then it, it, I think it came across in the show. Um I've never been someone who's lacked confidence, but I certainly didn't that night. <laughs> and was it based off of the success of that show and then the ensuing one back home in Edmonton that led to you guys being like, you know what, maybe we should start putting music out again? Or had you already kind of had those conversations before the reunion shows? Uh, conversations, but nothing really. That show, absolutely, yes. To answer your question, that was what did it. We got off stage and we're like, that, this, like, that, like, if we are going to be allowed to do this, if people are going to, support this then i'm gonna do it i can't not have this in my life if it's an option you know um so it was it it changed everything we got off stage and we were like 
you know, and again, we have a lot of self-awareness. We knew that this sold out because it was a novelty, right? It's 10 years we live in. It's not that like we're back. It's not like we have work to do. If people are going to still come out, they're not going to, you know, they did this because it was a one-time thing. But with that said, we knew that we had a supportive fan base that had never left us. And that was crazy too. Um, because like I said it on stage that night, but it was true, man. It's like, we didn't even believe in ourselves. We broke up. We we were done with it, but they did. They still would listen to the songs. They still like to meet the people after the show too, man, and talk about like what we meant to them in those days. Like I always kind of joke about, yeah, we're like a, you know, we're a shitty pop band. We sing about like making out with girls, but then you actually like meet the people and like, man, like you guys were awesome because you were this positive energy. And when I was in a bad place in high school, whatever, it was like, holy shit, man, this band meant something to people. And so to me at that point, I went home and I wrote Summer Girl within a week of coming home from that first Toronto show. And then Edmonton, yeah, it was icing on the cake to sell that one out. That was even tougher because uh, much smaller market, obviously. Uh, and it was just, yeah, it's, it's just been a thrill, man, ever since that show. Mm-hmm. And so now that you guys are back together, are you kind of diving headfirst into it? Or are you still working on the side while doing the band at the same time? Yeah, I'm kind of all over the map, man. I've started some songwriting stuff, which is like my favorite way to make money, obviously. I've actually done some kids songs. Um, and uh, I'm still like, I still do some some stuff on the side, absolutely. I would say that like the bulk of our income is definitely not from music uh, yet. Um, but, you know, our whole hope is that we can kind of get into some summer festivals and uh, and kind of do it that way. The The good thing about the way the music industry now is, is you can do a lot of it remote without having to actually, you know, hop in a van and play to nightclubs again, which I don't think I would want to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. And speaking of how things have changed in the last 10 years, how has streaming influenced your approach as a band? Because in 2008, 2009, it didn't really exist the way it does today. So how does that affect what you're doing in terms of distribution? So... Um, that's a great question and it's massive. And honestly, I don't know anything about it. And that's why I'm so glad that we have Andrew in the fold, our manager, because he is young, he's hungry and he knows the industry. And so streaming, I'll be completely honest with you. Like I don't still understand how the fuck this stuff works. I don't. And so I'm so glad that Andrew's here because like, to me, you're right, dude, we sold CDs. Like imagine that was, that was both of our albums were in that era. And so when the Sunset Goal was released, um, that day, Andrew kept feeding us through, guys, we got added to this playlist. We got added to this playlist, added to this playlist. And I was like, cool. But it didn't mean anything. I didn't get it. I was like, that's, 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 okay. If that's good, then good. I don't know though, because that's not how I listen to music still, man. I just have my own like shuffle, whatever. But then last night, my wife actually, she was getting ready for work. And she was like, oh, look what came on. And it was our song. I was like, cool whatever, right? Because the way I'm thinking is, yeah, you probably downloaded it and it's one of the songs on your shuffle. But no, dude, she was listening to the same playlist that this new music iTunes playlist, just like with every artist that she listens to all the time. And it was one of those songs. So now it kind of clicks into me. I'm like, oh, okay. So when people, this is almost like the equivalent of like turning on the radio now and it being on the radio, right? Is it's, it's on these main um, sort of vessels where people consume music. And so I'm fucking sorry, man. I ramble, but like, yes, it is very important the streaming, but I'm only really starting to understand um, the importance and what that actually means for us. That's fair. And then speaking of sunset gold, how do you approach writing music now versus 10 years ago? If I'm mis- not mis- I think I've heard you guys say that like 
there's more of an EDM influence now than there was before? Like how does the approach of how you write and then your influences, how has that changed? So the influence is yes, big time. So I, I like, I was really, really into like Akon, T-Pain, uh, Kanye West. Uh, I'm trying to think of like the dream was like one of my hugest influences and like his songs for Yana and Justin Bieber. Um, and I still love that stuff. I do, but it's not the stuff that I would want to play now. And so I actually got like, I think that what we're doing now is actually the same thing as we did back then. It's just with a more modern influence. And so what I mean by that is what we did back then that was cool and different was we combined a live rock and roll band with a hip hop R and B sound. Right. And it was like, especially with our live show, um, it was what people really latched onto. A lot of people would come to our live show and be like, man, I thought I didn't like you guys, but I see you live and it has the big instruments. It's loud. It's sick. I love it. And so I really wanted to make sure we got that on this record where the guitars and the drums feel live as opposed to like, um, before. And then the EDM influence is just a, a more updated way of combining those two sounds. It's more modern, I would say, like Chainsmokers, Kygo, um, you know, Diplo, things like that is a lot of what I listen to, like when I'm in the gym or whatever. And combining that with a live rock and roll sound, I think that is very unique too. Like it, it was unique when we started out doing the hip hop R&B thing. And I just wanted to do a more updated version of that. But other than that, man, the songwriting has not changed. It's still the guys allow me to write the songs. And then once I have a demo, everyone kind of gives their input. And, uh, and then, and then we take it to production. Mm -hmm. Based on that, I have two questions. The first one being in a 2020 scenario, how important is live shows for building a fan base when so much success can be had online? And second, following that is how cool a feeling is it to turn a crowd that's never heard you before? That, yeah. So like the live show is always the payoff. I love every, every step of the way. I love writing songs especially when I get a new one, it's a high, man. I'm like, I, I, I don't mind saying I listen to my own demos over and over. I love it. But the payoff is when you can perform it live. And I think you can just sell it so much more. I'm sure everyone has an example of a band that they kind of were mediocre about. And then they saw them live and they fell in love with them. And then conversely, a lot of people have that one where they love a band, they see them live, and they're kind of disappointed, man, you know, they don't talk to the crowd, they don't mention that they're in Edmonton that night, you know what I mean, you like that personal touch, or they don't move enough, or they don't like, you know what I mean, like, there's that connection that just doesn't exist. There's bands that I've hated that I saw live, and I'm like, you know what, still don't like the songs, but fuck that band will rip, and I will like, I'll tell anyone who will listen, like, that band is sick, because again, I don't like it, but they, they know what they're doing. I think the live is just that extra, just that extra chip uh, in the middle, man, like you, it, it gives, it gives you a way to sell the music and really connect with people in a way that, uh, I think is meaningful. Because again, if we go back to the very start, June 28, 2000, the day I decided I was no longer going to be a pro skateboarder is because of the live show and that connection. So that's what set me on the path of music. And so I want to hold up that end of the bargain. Um, there was a second part to your question. I'm sorry. No, it was, it was about how good does it feel to turn a crowd that's never heard you before? Well, that's happened a handful of times and it's fucking incredible, man. One of the best memories I've ever had um, in my life with Dan. We talk about it a lot lately. We've been asked a lot about the past and so the same stories kind of come up, but um, one of the best, most like pure, uh, real moments I've ever had of like joy playing music was we were on a mini tour in BC with a band called Glory Nights and we played to fucking maybe 25 people. And we had a very like fifties influence. There was a lot of like clapping and like singing and this crowd, man, they didn't know our first two songs, but they all got into it. It was a bunch of girls in the crowd and they were singing back by the end of it. And we got off stage, man. And we just hugged 
And it was like, again, we played to 20 people, but it was like, this works. We, we've got something here, man. And that feeling is, uh, that's incredible. With that said, I am way too fucking old to do that now. I really hope we're just playing the crowds that do like us already. But um, if we have to do it again, I think I could. And I want to ask about social media for a minute. Who managed your guys' social back in the day? Fuck, man. Good question. I don't know. I think like like our personal ones were obviously us. But in terms of like the, the band, do you mean like the like mm, any social yeah. stereos? I don't know, man. I was going to ask because I saw it because I did like a deep scroll and you guys live streamed a ton back in the day. And I was just curious to ask about that because like live streaming today is so common, but you guys were doing like 2011. I know even like live stream, I think was your Wii Day performance and everything like from a laptop. Not oh, from a phone. dude, you know what? Right around that time, I don't know if it was her, so I could be wrong. But right around that time, we had this girl, uh, Lola, who came in. She has like a handle. I love Lola. I uh, You should check her out. She is now like i don't even know what she does now but like she is like massive like sort of like a pr uh to the stars now and she came in like kind of pro bono and just helped us out around that era and i bet you that would be her she had so many great ideas that were outside the box and it paid off for her man she's like massive now like um she's doing her thing but uh she came in and she really really helped us around that level she was basically the reason that led uh, us getting the showcase with akon too so it was probably her that that's awesome. And then do you, do you recognize the Twitter handle at Starry Hose? <laughs> of course, dude. Yeah, absolutely. That was, uh, I don't, I take a, sorry. It's all right. I don't know who, which like uh, girls specifically it was. They'd probably be very mad at me for saying that. Cause I know I'm pretty sure some of them were at the Toronto show, but yeah, they took it upon themselves to make a little, um, fan club Starry Hose, um, which is epically clever. What I was, so when I was doing this deep scroll, I, I clicked on that account and I was looking through it and the day you guys announced that you were breaking up as a band, they were doing like a countdown and they were so stoked for this huge announcement you guys had to make. And then you announced that you guys were breaking up the band and oh, I literally no. screenshotted it just to watch their progression of like two hours till announcement. And then literally it's like one hour, 10 minutes. And then it's like, oh, we're very sad to hear that the band is broken up. But we're excited to see what's next. Like it was just funny to kind of watch their progression <laughs> from like. I didn't know that, dude. That is so funny. Oh my God. Gosh, imagine. Oh, that's so oh, I feel bad now. That's funny. Sorry, Stereos. <laughs> <laughs> and then what about today? Like, are you guys managing your own accounts or is it Andrew that's man or like the band account? Is it you guys managing it or is it Andrew? Uh mostly Andrew, yeah, hundred percent. Like, um, he is a very good way of like I I like responding to people as much as possible. I feel so guilty when I don't. And I think he knows when to and when not to. And I think it's probably best that, uh, you know, he, he's doing most of the, the interactions uh, on social media because, again, I, I, I don't know. I come in from a very weird personal perspective and I would like, it kills me. Man, we got an email once back in the day that, uh, or it's like a Facebook message. And the person was like, we came to a show and Pat like wouldn't take a photo with this girl, blah, blah, blah. And dude, I've already said it. Like, I've never said no to a photo. So I was like, what the fuck? I don't remember. Like, I don't know what happened. And just like affects me too much, man, which uh, it shouldn't. So yeah, again, you're welcome. Very long way of saying it's not me. <laughs> Fair. And I wanted to ask you too, you mentioned earlier, you're a big sports fan. Massive, yeah. And then I believe I've heard you quote as saying you're a bigger fan of hockey than music, right? Yeah, it's probably some douchey thing I said. I mean, yeah, yeah. I would say like, the Edmonton Oilers affect my mood on a daily basis more than music. Like music is like, it's, it's that 
age old kind of, you know, adage, like musicians want to be athletes and athletes want to be musicians. So for me, music, I like my band, but I'm not like a music freak by any, like, I, I don't care enough about it. Yeah. The, I would say that's probably accurate. Now that I think about it. My next question is in what, like, what was the scenario that led to you creating a Tim Tebow Edmonton Oilers jersey? <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Cause I'm dumb. So like this is in the middle of Tebow mania, which I don't know, sports fans will remember probably, but like not most other people. And it was like, what man, like a few months, a few months where people were freaking out over Tim Tebow and I'm just an idiot. And I was like, I'm making a Tim Tebow Oilers jersey because I am the level of superstition where I think like, if I, oh fuck, I'm not wearing the same Oilers jersey I wore last time we won. That's why we're losing right now. Like, I think I have an effect on the game because I'm a, like just absolute psychopath. And so I was like, man, we need that Tebow energy. And yeah, I made it. And it's the stupidest thing in the world. I still have it though. That's hilarious. And so then being such a big Oilers fan, how cool is it to sing the national anthem at the game? Have you heard the story about that? Uh, yeah, I have. Okay, yeah. It didn't go the best, right? Well, it went as good as it could have gone because I made the entire band and road crew sing it with me because I went out too late the night before and had no voice. So there was like nine of us singing the anthem. I don't think nine people have ever sang the anthem <laughs> before or since. And again, it's not even like, it'd be one thing if it's the band stereo is singing the anthem, but it was, it was <laughs> us and road crew. <laughs> like, oh dude, so, so funny um oh i didn't realize i thought it was just i like my extent of that story was you went out the night before so your voice wasn't the best i didn't realize you brought everyone out with you yeah it's genius it's one of the best ideas i've ever had it's like they can't uh they can't know which one of us suck if we all suck and so um and we found out the day of that we had to sing the american one because they were playing the panthers so that was great um it was an amazing experience obviously i'm like joking around it was so incredible for them to have us um how was that one funny part of that though was uh they had us waiting right by where the players were getting ready to go out before we sang and i brought a girl to that and she was very attractive and so we're standing right beside like ready to go out and uh then the kind of players are like walking out and they for some reason were like maybe it was after the pregame skate or whatever but they were kind of just waiting there ready to go and all the players started like looking at her very obviously and like looking at her and like smiling and stuff i was like fuck like bad call bringing her out here um anyways yeah it was, it was a hilarious uh moment and great and i had to think on my feet so yeah nine people singing the anthem and i remember getting chirped very heavily after the anthem by someone saying uh not so good without the autotune hey buddy <laughs> jeez and then another the other sports story i wanted to ask you about was playing the gray cup in 2009 i noticed it was in calgary so as a proud edmontonian you were made sure not to wear a Stampeder sweater and you wore a Saskatchewan sweater to that game as well. Okay, I'm scared of coming across as an alcoholic, but that's another almost identical story, dude. Identical. We all went out the night before. There was a Hooters across from our hotel and we floored it, dude. Like we stayed out all night. And the next day, same thing. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not feeling so great. So we had our local universal rep take us to the store in the stadium. And I was like, here's the thing. I'm not going to sound great, but I know how to make this crowd like us. Let's wear Riders gear because, dude, Calgary was all Riders fans. They were playing the Alouettes, so it wasn't that many Montreal fans. And I was like, the way they're going to like us is if we all wear green. And so that's where um, that came. The amount of times I've had to be like very clever because I drank too much the night before is kind of concerning now that I say it. 
And the other thing in terms of sports I wanted to ask you about was Spittin' Chicklets. I hear you're a pretty big fan of that show, right? I'm a massive fan of Spittin' Chicklets. Yeah, yeah. It's like my favorite thing in the world. Do you think there's ever a chance that we get to hear you guys on Spittin' Chicklets? I know they've gotten done some artist interviews in the past. Bro, that's like my, that's my goal is that this band gets like somewhat significant enough that I can like, um, I'm sure everyone at home is like, man, you know what? These guys would love me everyone thinks that so they uh, who fucking knows if they actually would but um yeah no i would love to get on spit and chicklets that'd be sick i mean like i'm definitely um a very like avid oilers fan although i will say this all right do you know brett kissel at all the country artist yeah so sweet human being man such a nice guy you can just tell like as he talks that he's a good person um and he was on spit and chicklets and he was on the oilers broadcast the other night okay well, after he was on the broadcast, now I will be honest with you, he was on maybe a little bit too long, like helping with the play-by-play for like half the period. He was trending, and I was like, well, why is he trending? And again, man, like fucking great guy, knows his stuff about hockey too. And dude, the comments were so harsh like, about him. And so my point with all of this is this. He's such a likable guy. I'm way more of a douchebag. So if they don't like Brett Kissel, I don't know how much people are going to like me. I would have to keep it very short and sweet, I think. Fair. And then before, so I ask everyone the same standard questions before we wrap up, but there's one thing I wanted to ask you about before that. And it's, I was, I have like my whole notes for my prep and I didn't know where to slot this question in. So I'm just going to ask it here. I've heard you quoted as saying that every single One Direction, every single song One Direction puts out is good. Is that still true today? I mean, I like to talk in superlatives. I will be honest with you. I'm sure there's a couple I don't like, but fuck yeah, man. They, those guys just absolute bangers. Like I like to be a little bit like, you know, when people start shit talking Bieber or something, I really like to go the other way and be like, fuck that man. Like he's getting paid. He's doing his thing and he rips. The guy's awesome. So that's kind of probably me trying to like, just like, uh, you know, for so many people being like, what's music coming to one direction. It's like, shut the fuck up. It's pop music and it's incredible. But yeah, dude, I love, um, What's that? It doesn't matter. Anyways, yes, I love like 90% of One Direction songs. And then so like long term, like what's your goal long term? Like where do you see everything heading for you in the band? Man, I would love to get to a place where we can, you know, turn this into sort of a rejuvenation of our, uh, you know, lives in music. And so what I mean by that is, of course, I want to keep going with stereos. I think that because we have the ability to, you know, we can make any sort of even genre with this band it gives us the ability to kind of go forward in any way we want. And on the other side too, is like, I really have always loved songwriting and I had the opportunity to get a publishing deal back in 2011 when we were bigger and I never took it, man. And I would love to maybe go down that route again and turn this into an actual more of a career in songwriting because that is my passion. And I think I'd be really good at it. I've you know written songs in just about every genre right down to the stuff I've been doing lately for Treehouse, which is like kids songs. Um, and so I would love for it to sort of just reacquaint all the members with the music industry and maybe create, you know, more of a, a home for us, uh, professionally in that, in that scene whatever that looks That's like. awesome, man. Yeah. That's awesome. And I wish you nothing but the best when it comes to that. And before we wrap up here, so I ask everyone the same standard questions. I used to call them rapid fire, but no one can ever answer these really rapid fire. So now I don't know what you to can call try it. it, but yeah. Okay. First one being, you're going to dinner. You can take three people, anybody dead or alive. Who do you take to dinner? Ooh, Wayne Gretzky. Um, man, maybe 
Rob because Wayne Gretzky is going to be there and Connor McDavid. Easy, actually. I don't know why we even think about that. What is the best advice? Some of the best advice you've ever gotten. Uh, no one knows what they're talking about. And that was about the music industry and it was right. When your alarm goes off in the morning, what motivates you to get up and out of bed? Coffee. <laughs> What's one thing about you people wouldn't expect? Um, I'm absolutely way more handsome in person than in photos. <laughs> What's one thing about you that everyone needs to know? Or sorry, one thing about life that everyone needs to know. Because I was going to say that I'm actually 5'10", and I'm not anything lower, despite what Dan says. What's one thing everyone needs to know? Um, Correct. Oh, man. Oh, I think it's like on the tip of my tongue. There's so many things that like, uh, oh, my God. See, I'm, I'm absolutely blowing the rapid fire thing now. Oh, here, here's what it is. Everyone needs to know that you don't need to post that on Facebook. And when I mean that, I'm, you know what I mean. You don't need to. What's the point? Just don't do it. I love that. <laughs> For the final question, yeah. I like to flip the script a little bit. So instead of me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but it's not to me. So pretend you have a crystal ball and you can ask this crystal ball any question. What is one question you'd want to know the answer to? Will I have hair this thick forever? All right. <laughs> I, I honestly thought you were going to ask when the Oilers were going to win the cup. Um, I don't know. want to know that, man. Cause it's kind of like knowing when you're going to die. Like I wouldn't, I, I'm too afraid of like a, a, a bad answer. <laughs> They'd probably go hand in hand to be honest, because one will lead to me being able to die happy. Do you know, I was actually at the Gretzky's last game as an Oiler when he won the Stanley cup, but I was like three and don't remember it. Really? Yeah, man. There was a power That's outage crazy. in Boston. It's a crazy story. Power outage in Boston. So they had to cancel the game and move it back to Edmonton. And my dad knew the trainer at the time hit patch and he got us in and I was able to watch that game. I don't remember, but it's a cool story. That is a crazy story, man. And I want to, I want to thank you so much for taking the last almost hour and a half to be on this podcast. I want to give you the floor. Where can the people find you? Where can they find the band plug everything and anything you got right now? All right, man. Well, like I um, have been very open about, I don't know how the fucking any of this works, but I know we're on Spotify. Um, so it's there. It's on every streaming service. So anywhere you can listen to music, uh, the new single Sunset Gold. It is uh, one of my favorite things we've ever done. It's a new direction, but um, I think that it, uh, it's a great introduction into kind of the new, uh, new, new places that we're heading. Um, you can find us at We Are Stereos on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And then I think it's just at Stereos on Facebook. Um, and yeah, check those out. Um, if you do enough digging, you can probably find our personal accounts and stuff. Hit us up. We'd love to talk to people who love us. If you don't love us, then just stay away. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. I want to thank you once again for being on the podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening. Whether you listen the entire way through, you only listen to bits and pieces. I really appreciate you taking time to check this out. Everyone do me a favor. Go and check out Sunset Gold. Go and follow Stereos on Instagram. I'll make sure everything is linked in the show notes down below. And if you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. And if you'd like to follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram and at my social life podcast or on YouTube by searching on my social life. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon. Mm-hmm.